When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitiv.com. Make your deal count. In 1999, David Bowie gave an interview to the BBC to promote Hours, his first new record for two years. As always with Bowie, it was never just about the music. Bowie bonds are the big, one of the things you're best known for. Yeah. It, you were supposed to raise 30 million by selling yes, um, it did. Uh, rights to your earnings, future, future earnings on your, ba- on your the back catalogue. Back yeah. Catalog, yeah. yeah. Doesn't there come a point at which there's no point in earning any more money? What is striking from the exchange is the fact that three years after it took place, the singer was still being asked about the so-called Bowie Bonds, the securitisation of his back catalogue. It illustrates just how groundbreaking the deal was. This kind of thing had never been done before. There was a real feeling that it would revolutionise the music industry and the way that major artists got paid. This is the story of how the Bowie Bonds came about. It's the story of how a bitter fallout between Bowie and the man who'd helped make him an international superstar gave birth to a revolutionary new financial product. And it did require David to be sufficiently disciplined not to do drugs. And he wasn't. At the trading floor, the phones were ringing off the hook. So at that point, I knew we had something. That's sort of what I was trying to understand was, could we rely on these revenues over time? So I decided, if you really want to buy me out, let's fix a price. It's also the story of disappointment, of how the revolution promised by the Bowie Bonds never really came about, and how the pioneers behind the deal ended up in a multi-billion dollar court battle that has, to this day, left many of those involved feeling bitter and resentful. I'm Gareth Gore, and this is The Syndicate from IFR. First, we have to go back to April 1970 and a meeting that took place in London between David Bowie, his wife Angela and the young lawyer Tony DeFries. Bowie had already been in the music business for seven years and was widely considered something of a one-hit wonder. Space Oddity, which had been released to coincide with the moon landings in July 1969, got to number five in the UK charts, but everything else had been a flop. Bowie blamed his lack of success on his manager and record label, who only seemed to be interested in milking his one big hit. He'd heard about DeFries, who'd made a name for himself as a champion for downtrodden artists, and thought it was worth a shot. After starting out helping photographers assert their rights over how their images were used, DeFries had begun working with a number of singers, musicians and songwriters. In 1969, he formed his own label. He remembers his first meeting with Bowie at his Cavendish Square offices. David and Angela were like two children out of a Dickens novel. They literally were very young, although I was only a few years older, but I mean, they seemed to be very young and very innocent in many ways. David was long hair, snaggletoothed, not particularly appealing and very feminine 
Angela was more masculine, very brash and American, and they had no idea what they were doing. What he said was he had a manager, Ken Pitt, who didn't understand what David felt he wanted to happen for him. De Vries saw clearly what the problem was. Bowie needed to get out of his record deal. Your real problem isn't your contract with Compit. Your real problem is your contract with Mercury Records. That contract is going to prevent you from moving forward because you're making recordings that they don't have the ability or the inclination to promote. They are looking at you through the wrong lens. De Vries' pitch to Bowie was this. He would get the record label to release Bowie and give him back the rights to all his music. De Vries would then give him everything he needed to develop as an artist. The time, the space, the money, and, most importantly, the right opportunities to perform and cultivate his image. In return, the two of them would split 50-50 any profits after all the bills, including Bowie's personal expenses, were paid. It was a big financial risk for De Vries, but he saw huge potential. Bowie took a few weeks to consider the offer before deciding to take the plunge. He sacked his manager and signed up with De Vries, who then proceeded to write a threatening letter to Mercury Records, accusing them of breaching their contract by failing to promote Bowie properly. He never expected them to just release Bowie. It was all part of a strategy to engineer a position where the record label had something to lose. Bowie was recording The Man Who Sold the World and racking up sizable studio and other bills. To ratchet up the pressure, De Vries refused to release the album. De Vries and the label were locked in a stalemate and it all came to a head at a meeting between De Vries and Erwin Steinberg, one of the founders of Mercury Records, at a meeting in 1971 in London. They perceived that our weakness might be that David couldn't afford to buy himself out of the contract. So when we had this meeting in London and we sat down face to face, not with David, just myself and Erwin, Erwin told me that they'd spend a great deal of money on promoting David and making records and they had this overhanging deficit. And I said, well, how much is it? And he said, well, he doesn't know offhand, but he can get me a number. And I said, if I pay you everything outstanding, will you release the masters and all the other material you have? And he said he would, which was a mistake. Mercury finally came back with a number, $18,000. Unknown to Mercury, Bowie and De Vries had been secretly negotiating a separate licensing deal with RCA, which would give them the funds they needed. By August of 1971, the deal was done. Bowie was not only free, but, and this was very unusual in the industry, he now had control over all his material. You might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with the Bowie bombs that were sold a quarter of a century later? The answer is everything. Owning the copyright meant he would later be able to sell bonds backed by the income from that copyright. But crucially, Bowie had also bound himself completely to DeFreeze. That was all well and good while their relationship worked, but 
by 1975, the two of them had stopped speaking, and Bowie began to despise the deal he'd signed up to, as DeFries recalls. What I said to David at the beginning was, I do not do drugs. I knew David had been experiencing drugs. He played around with them in the past. I said, if we're going to work together, I am not going to get involved in any form of addiction or substance abuse or drug taking. I need you to agree that you will be free of and will remain free of drugs. That was a central part of our arrangement and it did require David to be sufficiently disciplined not to do drugs and he wasn't. He failed to keep that promise. So my biggest problem with David in the 1970s was that he took first of all cocaine which was readily available and then heroin and this made it impossible for us to have an ongoing relationship of the sort that we started out with. Cocaine tends to induce paranoia, often find themselves in a place where they don't know who to trust. The speed of that rise from obscurity to fame made David think, along with the drugs, that he should be in charge. To want to have more authority over whether we did this TV show or whether we did this concert. And it became a difficult relationship because talking to somebody who needs to go to the bathroom to snort coke every 15 minutes doesn't allow for a real conversation. And it created a split in the relationship that I had with David. In drugs anymore? No, absolutely not. And you don't drink? I don't drink either, no. Not even a glass of wine or anything? No, it would kill me. If I what started do you mean it would kill you? I'm an alcoholic, so it, was, uh, it would be a uh, kiss of death for me to start drinking again. It's very hard to have relationships when you're doing drugs and, uh, and drinking. I f for me, personally, anyway. Um, and uh, you become closed off, unreceptive, insensitive, all the dreadful things that you've heard every other pop singer ever say. And uh, I was very lucky that I found my way out of that. The two of them struck a deal to give Bowie ownership of any future material. But crucially, DeFries still owned and controlled 50% of anything created up to that point, which included Hunky Dory, his Ziggy Stardust material, Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs. For more than 20 years, Bowie had to basically seek DeFries' permission to use any of that stuff. It was something the singer deeply resented. Such was the animosity that every conversation had to take place through intermediaries, such as the entertainment lawyer John Eastman, and irrational business decisions were often made just despite the other guy. David then felt that he hadn't been able to get control of everything, and so he became very negative. In order to make it, as he saw, more difficult for me, he would essentially withhold support for things that made sense. Equally, I wasn't willing to let the catalogue be treated in a way that would diminish its value or reduce the revenue. And this went on from the 70s into the 80s. At some point in the 80s, uh, John Eastman invited me to lunch and asked me if I'd be willing to sell 
my interests because David had asked him to find out. And I said, I might. And I gave him a number and he went away and came back, said he thought the number was too high, foolishly. That was the end of that conversation. This dysfunctional relationship went on like that until 1996, when the stars suddenly, miraculously, came into alignment. It was also a busy year for Bill Zeisblatt, Bowie's manager since the 1980s. Very unusually, both of Bowie's big deals, his record licensing deal and his publishing licensing deal, were due to expire together at the end of 1996. At the same time, Bowie was keen to relocate. He'd been resident in Switzerland for many years and had toyed with living in Ireland. But he and his second wife, Iman, actually quite fancied the idea of living in the States. Zeisblatt told me he spotted a potential opportunity for Bowie to be a resident of nowhere for a short time. By going to live in a tax haven while the new deals were sewn up and negotiating a nice advance on a new deal up front, Bowie could save millions in taxes. Better still. It could all be done through a trust that would minimise the amount that his son Duncan would have to pay on his death. His daughter Lexi wouldn't be born for a few more years. Zeisblatt told me that Bowie was just about to turn 50 at the time and was keen to start structuring his estate in the best way for his family. The expiry of his existing deals made it the perfect time to sort that out. It was time for Bowie to get his estate in order. I think that I, I probably, the majority of the money that I make goes, I plough back into some, uh, some new project or other. Uh, I also, of course, being working class, always feel that there's never enough to leave my family. So I, there's a kind of a survival instinct that, okay, I could definitely, that's going to be fine. I can leave that to all the kids future and past, um, and uh, everybody will be okay. Just as Zeisplatt was looking to get Bowie's deals in a state in order, a third thing happened. They were approached by Tony DeFries. By then, DeFries had well and truly moved on. He had developed a fascination with quantum physics and invested in a few startups, including one that was trying to work out how to send video and audio across power lines. He was tired with all the legal back and forth, and proposed to Zeisblatt that Bowie buy him out. He could use the money to invest in his startups and free up time to focus on what he really cared about. I didn't want to spend the time anymore of every time there was a new catalogue deal to do or some new synchronisation licence to grant, some new issue that came up. I'd have to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So I decided, if you really want to buy me out, let's fix a price. What happened next is slightly contested. DeFries says Bowie didn't have the cash available to buy him out. Zeisblatt says the singer didn't want to reach into his pocket to pay off his estranged former manager. But whatever happened, Bowie said he was open to buying out DeFries as part of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get his estate in order and instructed Zeisblatt to go off and talk to various banks about how they might finance the buyout. Then, something else happened. As well as managing artists like Bowie, Sting and the Rolling Stones, 
Zeisblatt also had a sideline as an investor in a company that dabbled in life insurance. The company would buy old policies from people, keep up the premiums and then collect the money when they died. One day, in mid-1996, one of his co-investors called Zeisblatt and told him that he was thinking of securitizing some of the policies on the company books. Basically, packaging them up into a bond and selling it on, which would give them the cash to buy more policies. He said he was meeting a banker from a boutique firm called Gruntal Co. the following week. So Zeisblatt decided to tag along. The banker they met was David Pullman. Uh, we had done other work for him, other investments that he had in uh, new asset classes. Each time I would meet with him, and this happened with many other people, they'd run ideas by, you know, you're on Wall Street and, you know, could you do this? And it's usually something that doesn't make any sense. Zeisblatt was thinking about how to raise the cash to buy out DeFries. And as they started talking about securitizing life insurance policies, Zeisblatt said he had an idea. He asked Pullman whether royalties were something you could also securitize. He can still remember Pullman's reply clearly. I can securitize anything. At this stage, Pullman didn't know what Zeisblatt did for a job and certainly didn't know that the royalties they were talking about were from songs by David Bowie. The two of them arranged to meet again and this time got down to detail. At that meeting, he asked me what I could do. So I asked a few questions. What was the total income? David made as much as a, a large company would make. Did they have a three years of financials? They had five years of financials. I said, were they audited? They said, yes. Uh, were they by, at the time, would be big six accounting firm? And they said, yes, to which I said, I could securitize that. Zeisblatt wasn't completely convinced by the idea. It all seemed overly complex, and he had major doubts about whether or not it would come off. Still, he wanted to keep his options open. Feedback from the banks about a loan hadn't been good, at least on the terms that Zeisblatt was pushing for. Bowie was adamant that he could, under no circumstances, lose control of his back catalogue, which ruled out using it as collateral for a loan. Zeisblatt had also created a complex tax-efficient structure, that meant that Bowie wouldn't actually own the bank catalogue. It would actually be an offshore trust, and the banks really weren't comfortable about lending against it. At that stage, Zeisblatt believed his best option would be a relatively straightforward deal with a record label, which would pay Bowie an advance that he could use to buy out DeFries. He was already in talks with EMI, which had offered him two options. One had higher royalty rates every year and no advance. The other had lower royalty rates but a big advance up front, which Bowie could use to pay off his old manager. In his mind, that was probably the road they would go down. Still, he gave Pullman all the figures he needed and told him to go away and start work on the securitization, not really expecting it to go anywhere. Just a week after their second meeting, Zeisblatt got a call from Pullman, who said he had a buyer, insurance company Prudential, one of Gruntal Co.'s biggest clients and a major investor in mortgage securitizations. The banker asked Zeisblatt what kind of advances EMI was offering. I can double that, was the reply. Zeisblatt was astounded. If you can really double that, then we'll go down your road, he said. Over the next few weeks, work intensified. Then there was a leak. On December the 5th, 1996, 
While all parties were still hard at work putting the deal together, the Wall Street Journal printed a short story with the headline, Ziggy Stardust hopes investors will sing the praises of this issue. The team clearly did have a leak. The story had most of the details. Not everyone in the market was convinced, though. Is this a joke? One investor was quoted as saying. Still, the story prompted a lot of calls to David Pullman. The Wall Street Journal broke the story that we're working on it, and it was really fascinating to me because what had happened was the story talked about to municipal bond investors. They thought, are you kidding me? Or they couldn't believe that we were doing this deal. But at our firm, the trading floor, the phones were ringing off the hook for the institutional investors domestically and overseas to buy the bonds. So at that point, I knew we had something in terms of I created something that the world wanted because it was enormous, the response. All the biggest investors, the most sophisticated investors in the world wanted to buy these bonds. But first, there was a lot of work to do. Putting securitizations together normally takes months and months and involves dozens of different players. Ratings agencies, lawyers, auditors, trustees, payment agents, and so on. Across town in New York, one of those approached to work on the transaction was Jay Eisbrook, an analyst at Moody's. The deals I was working on were more along the lines of auto-backed securities and credit card-backed securities, you know, more standard asset-backed collateral. At that time, there weren't that many of the collateral types that you see in asset-backed securities today that was still being developed. The market was still relatively new at that point in time. So I'd say I had heard that there had been some transactions done in the film securitization space, and that was interesting to me. And that's sort of when we received the proposal for this uh, music royalty deal. There was this very large binder filled with all sorts of information about the transaction and said, you know, here's the transaction, maybe you can take a look at this and see if this is something that you'd like to work on. I thought it was definitely interesting. I was interested in music. The idea of potentially having a, a predictable revenue stream that you know you have in other asset classes seemed like uh, a possibility. It could potentially work. Moody's agreed to provide a rating for the transaction. Eisbrook recalls that Pullman didn't strike him as your typical ABS banker. And of course, the underlying assets were also something very different. But apart from that, this was just like any other deal. What followed were weeks of going through the numbers line by line. You know, it was really trying to understand the different revenue streams. You know, that for me was a bit of a learning process to learn about what went into record royalty revenues. Could we rely on these revenues over time? Key to putting Eisbrook at ease was the separate deal that Zeisplatt was hammering at with EMI. The record label had effectively guaranteed Bowie a minimum amount of money every year which Zeisplatt planned to divert to the securitization vehicle, meaning it basically had a minimum amount of money coming in. At the time, a guarantee from EMI was as good as it got in the music world. It sold more than £2.5 billion of records a year and boasted artists including Blur, Prince and the Spice Girls. The guarantee from EMI, while the main factor in Moody's rating, wasn't the only thing that set Eisbrook's mind at ease when analysing the Bowie securitisation. The songs that backed the vehicle had a strong track record. Even if something were to happen to Bowie, sales would likely be unaffected. In fact, sales would probably rise if he passed away, as happened when the singer eventually died in 2016. And Bowie also seemed to be dependable. 
a major scandal that might hit his record sales seemed highly unlikely. There was a guarantee from EMI in the deal for record royalties you know, over the 15-year life of the transaction. You know, that in itself made up a big component of the revenues needed to cover the debt service for the deal. At EMI at the time was a single A-rated company. So that was in itself a big contributor to being able to get comfortable with the future revenues. I mean, I think we were less concerned about him dying. Again, we weren't relying on new music uh, for there to pay off. Again, it was, it was the catalog. And typically when an artist dies, the sales actually increase at that time and, and could potentially help. We did think about the risk of him doing some sort of unsavory act or something like that to hurt his reputation. I think we were able to get comfortable based on the fact that he had been an artist for a very long time. By December of 1996, everything seemed to be in place. On New Year's Eve, Zeisblatt sent a fax over to De Vries confirming that Bowie wished to exercise the option to buy his share of the back catalogue. All the material that the singer had produced prior to their falling out in 1975. That set off a countdown. De Vries had stipulated that the sale had to close by January 21st, giving them three weeks to finalise everything. When everyone returned to work after the New Year break, it quickly became apparent that not everything was in order. Critical paperwork was missing. Because of the complex transaction that was to take place, De Vries would have to transfer ownership of his share of the back catalogue to the trust before the securitization vehicle could raise the money that would be used to pay him. He needed to be sure it would all work as he had been told. Things weren't helped by the fact that Pullman and his team suddenly left Gruntel & Co. in the middle of all this for rival firm Fenestock & Co. In mid-January, Zeisblatt asked De Vries for more time. He responded by demanding an extra $1 million as a penalty for missing the January 21st deadline and an additional $100,000 a day for delays after the end of the month. The Bowie side thought that was spiteful and unreasonable. The two sides finally settled on a revised deadline of January 31st, with the $1 million fine only payable if that date was missed. But as the clock ticked down, the deal came perilously close to missing it again. I sent them a mail. I think when Bill asked me for the extension, I said, OK, well, you can have an extension, but and I gave him terms that were quite painful from their side, or terms that contained a penalty, so that they would actually either get it done or abandon it. When rock star David Bowie gets on stage these days, it's not just for the fans, it's for the investors. In a first-of-its-kind deal, Bowie has sold $55 million worth of bonds for a share of... Drumroll, please, David Bowie. In the end, Bowie raised $55 million from the deal a sizable chunk of which went to DeFries to buy back his old material. But that money didn't come cheap. As part of the deal, Bowie agreed to pay a 7.9% annual coupon to Prudential, which was $4.3 million a year just in interest costs, a whopping $43 million of interest over the 10-year life of the bonds. On top of that, there were hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees to pay. To the lawyers to Pullman, to Moody's, and all the others involved. 
Zeisbach told me that the deal would probably never have happened if they had known just how much it would end up costing. But Bowie had his material back and parked his songs in a tax-efficient trust. Even after subtracting what he paid DeFries and all the banker and lawyer fees, he still had millions of dollars that were also tax-free. He also had some power to influence the bonds that he had sold to Prudential. If record sales were better than expected, then the annual royalty payments from EMI to the trust that paid off the bonds would also be better than expected. And if the trust had enough excess cash, it could pay off the bonds early and save that eye-watering $4.3 million of interest he was paying every year. And that's exactly what happened. Over the next few years, Bowie was busier than ever. He put out five albums in six years and stepped up his tour schedule. The early 2000s were actually some of his busiest years in terms of shows, at least until he had a heart attack on stage in Germany in 2004. The exposure and all the appearances on talk shows and in the media helped drum up sales for all the old stuff, the songs that had backed the bonds. At the same time, he re-released a load of old material too. Eventually, the trust struck a deal with Prudential to pay off the bonds early. In truth, the insurance company was probably happy to agree. In 2004, the guarantee provided by EMI came back to haunt the deal. As the record company fell into difficulties, it and the Bowie bonds were downgraded by Moody's to just above junk. That's the end of the story, you might be thinking. Well, not quite, because with all the hype around the deal, Pullman, Zeisblatt and Prudential thought they were onto something big. They'd proven that securitizing music royalties could work, and the sky was the limit. They openly talked about this being a $1 billion market, and, as the architects of that first ever deal, they thought they were ideally placed to be market leaders. The three of them decided to form a joint venture, and began hunting for the next big deal. The Rolling Stones were top of their list. Then, something happened. Pullman went off and did a deal behind their backs. A $30 million 15-year deal for the legendary Motown songwriting trio Holland Dozier Holland. Zeisblatt and Prudential were livid. They tore up their plans, basically taking the view that they couldn't trust Pullman. Pullman has a different recollection. He decided to sue the two of them for damages, which he said amounted to $2.7 billion. He claimed they had stolen his intellectual property. I had structured a warehouse and Prudential wanted to be in business with us to get warehouse and fund these deals and then aggregate them and do more Pullman bonds. And so did the business manager. So they thought they would do it. And then after he'd done the first deal for David, they tried to do the deal after that, even though we had a contract which was ironclad and to do it on their own. What happened was they thought that they would try to cut me out and do it themselves. So what wound up happening was I went ahead and did all the deals. So now my view was, well, we were going to be splitting this, but now I'm 100%. So I was, it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. The judge dismissed the case. Pullman appealed, and that was thrown out too. Zeisblatt and Prudential went on to do a handful of small film securitizations, and Pullman also did a few small deals. For the husband and wife songwriting duo, Ashford and Simpson, for the singer James Brown, and also for the Isley Brothers. But the market never really took off. Zeisblatt said the banks soon swooped in and began lending against music royalties, 
which turned out to be a much cheaper and easier way to raise money for those that needed it. That's the story of the Bowie Bonds. Tony DeFries, along with Bowie, was the main beneficiary, albeit indirectly. So, how did that feel? <sighs> Relieved. <laughs> Honestly, the basic the is, you know, when you hold your breath for too long, the feeling of, at last I can breathe again, I have to think about that anymore. That's how I felt. I was very, very fond of David. Make no mistake, we had a great relationship for the first two, three, four years. He was unique, he was special. In many ways, the perfect writer, performer, artist, and we had an enormous amount of fun. There were ups and downs, there were dramas, there were hysterics, there was fainting during the Radio City Hall performance, there was breaking down in the dressing room before he went on stage and after he came off stage. But all through that, in the words of one of David's songs, we were the Bulet brothers. We were partners, brothers in arms, and we set out to kill the dragon, conquer the world, and we did. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Syndicate was researched, written and presented by me, Gareth Gore. The editor was Matthew Davis. This has been a fresher production for IFR. When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitive.com. Make your deal count.